Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. I'm Lisa Fisher, a longtime broadcaster and journalist in Arkansas who's been in front of a microphone or a camera since the 1980s. I think of myself as the queen of Arkansas media. For this episode, my guest is a chiropractor, heart attack survivor, and type 1 diabetic who, get this, is in his 30s. Dr. Stephen Hussey is also a book author, and you'll see the link to his book in the show notes, but get ready to meet him right after this. If you've listened to my podcast anytime at all, you know that I am Team Akles Carpet One. I've been a customer there a long time, but I love it now that I've been telling you people about it. And you people are shopping at Akles Carpet One. Now, Central Arkansas listeners will know about the three beautiful stores they have. The one in what we call Maumel, but that's technically North Little Rock, has just been redone. It's a wow of a store. But for the person who's listening right now who's building a house, okay, and his name is Darren. That's my producer. Darren is now a lifelong customer at Akles Carpet One because of the great service. He said they beat all the big box stores on price, selection, all the things. That's why I've been telling you for so long. I'm not making this up. They will tell you they beat the big box store prices and they do it every day. Are you looking for carpet, flooring, maybe new cabinets for the kitchen, the bathroom? You need tile, a backsplash, get my drift. Oh, and carpet, they got a ton of that too. Check them out by going to AklesCarpet1.com. She won most talkative in high school, and she has been running her mouth ever since. Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast with your host, Lisa Fisher. That's how I like to start a podcast, Dr. Hussey. Let's make some people mad. Let's ruffle some feathers and uh, (laughs) talk about some non-traditional approaches to very common ailments. Uh, Your story is neat. You You are a type 1 diabetic, correct? Correct. Show off. I mean, you just because you have that and did you have a heart attack? I did have a heart attack. Yes. I mean, you're what? 25? (laughs) 34. I was 34 when I had the heart attack. I'm I'm 35 now. Now, how is that? Okay. Is it because the type one diabetes puts you at a higher risk for cardiovascular disease? What is that? Uh, I mean, it definitely contributed, you know, higher blood sugars um, over the 26 years that I've had type one diabetes definitely predisposes me um, to, to heart disease for various reasons. Um, I was also under the most amount of stress I think I've ever been in my life. And I got some very distressing news, um, about a day and a half before the heart attack happened. Um, and so I think that those things played a role. Um, but, but yeah, um, yeah, had a heart attack, type one diabetic, had a lot of health issues in the past, um, have resolved most of them, but this, the heart attack was this kind of this new thing that, that popped up. So that probably really, it either opened your eyes or made you really cynical to Western medicine. Which one did it do? Well, I was already pretty cynical to Western medicine um, because of my past health history and how I felt like I was misled, um, not intentionally, but just misled by by them, um, not given all the information because they didn't have it. Um, But it made me it made me experience it firsthand um, because obviously I was super grateful to Western medicine in that moment because uh, the stent procedure saved my life. Um, however, after the fact, um, the, the care I received after the fact was incredibly short-sighted and based on everything I, I know um, about health and, and in general and, um, and the approach to health care that I would prefer. Um, but it was incredibly short-sighted and it was really... Um, uh, narrow-minded. Um, every time I would try and open the conversation about my health um, and my care in the hospital, the conversation was pretty much shut down because um, they either didn't care. I felt like some didn't care or some just didn't understand what I was trying to say or um, it didn't know what to do with the information that I was giving them or asking about. Um, and so I thought, I, I just feel that it's very, um, like, where where have we where have we gotten to in medicine where it's not even okay to question your care or, <laughs> or, <Yeah. laughs> or, um, or even um, to suggest new ideas? Like why is the conversation shut down um, on these issues when, when I'm talking, I'm laying there in the hospital bed talking about my care. Yeah. Have you heard of COVID? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just yeah. described how those of us who want medical autonomy have felt the last two years that exactly. if we challenged it, we were, we're pulled off social media. 
I mean, all all because we wanted to ask questions about what about my particular situation? Because that that's how I want people to look at things. Well, tell me about your health journey. Um, I I will say of all the diagnoses that uh, people talk about, um, type one diabetes is quite daunting. It's, um, it's intimidating, especially for uh, parents with daughters who wonder about their future and bearing children, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So we, we know it's autoimmune in nature. Your pancreas just did not produce insulin. But how old were you when that happened, Dr. Hussey, that you got the diagnosis? I was nine years old when that happened. and But prior to that, I had had a lot of inflammatory conditions as a child. So I I used to break out in hives all over my body. Um, they, they didn't really know why. They just kind of gave me steroids. Um, I used to have asthma, and um, I used to have allergies pretty terrible. I had IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Um, so lots of inflammatory conditions um, as a kid, and ultimately ended up with autoimmune type 1 diabetes, where my body attacked the cells in my pancreas that make insulin, so I no longer make insulin. So very different than type 2 diabetes, um, which is insulin resistance, usually later in age, but it's getting sooner and or earlier and earlier in age uh, for a lot of people these days. Um, so yeah, my cells uh, that typically would make insulin, don't make insulin. So I'm an insulin dependent diabetic. Um, I have to inject insulin to control blood sugars, which is very hard to be a pancreas. Um, it's very hard to, to um, predict those things. Um, and all kinds of things can change blood sugar, you know? So, so, it, but as I grew up um, and started, you know, I started to figure out that the way I live my life directly impacted my ability to manage um, all these conditions. And I've gotten rid of all those inflammatory conditions. I no longer have them aside from the autoimmune type 1 diabetes was kind of like collateral damage from the inflammation that I had. Um, and so I, um, you know, I, I was living, you know, going along, living my life, um, being the, um, getting healthier and healthier, and then found myself in a situation where this heart attack happened. Um, cause no matter how hard I try, you know, my blood sugars are always going to be higher than the, the average non-diabetic. Um, and they're always going to be fluctuating more because like I said, it's hard to be a pancreas. And I think that was a small contributor to the heart attack. Um, um, but the bigger one was the the stress that I was under. And I talk about that in my book and stuff. Um, but, um, but yeah, so that's, uh, that's so like heart disease or type one diabetes heavily predisposed me to heart disease. So I've done a lot of research into heart disease and, and found a lot of things that were contrary to what I was told in, um, in chiropractic school and just in my, my education in general. Um, and so I started to share those and, and, uh, here we are today. Did the pancreas work from age birth to nine? Yes. So it just like my thyroid and like my vitiligo, my melanin, just one day my thyroid quit working. So that's the same way we can look at then type one diabetes. Just one day you had enough antibodies that attacked the pancreas and it just puttered out. Yeah. So like the theory with any autoimmune disease is that something triggers the immune system to attack a, a cell of its own. So, um, you know, like with, um, so when we get leaky gut, so that's the buzzwords these days, like if the right. gut gets so damaged that, um, that it starts leaking things from the gut into the bloodstream that shouldn't be there, the body attacks those things. Uh, and since those things leaked in there, they weren't digested into the bloodstream um, or digested first and then put in the bloodstream. Since they leak there, they're, they're kind of unfamiliar to the body. So the body attacks them. And when the body attacks one time, one, something one time, it kind of creates these flags and those flags trigger to make antibodies. So the next time it encounters that, the body's ready to attack it again. Um, however, there's something called molecular mimicry. And so there are certain proteins that look just similar enough to another protein or another cell in the body that when the body gets flagged to attack that thing that was eaten and le- leaked through the, the gut, it also attacks things that look similar enough to it. and so like with gluten, um, there's, uh, there's similarities to gluten and like proteins in the thyroid cells and things like that. And, and like with, uh, casein and cow's milk, um, that's looks similar enough to beta cells in the pancreas and, and various things like that. So we get this molecular mimicry where the body gets confused and attacks itself, but never would have happened if I hadn't developed leaky gut, um, uh, when I was a kid that was leading to all those inflammatory conditions, but ultimately caused this improper attack of my body. At age nine, you didn't have the knowledge you have now. Your parents didn't have the knowledge you did now because, for one thing, we have made huge strides in functional medicine, health, and homeopathic treatments, all these different things. So what was the first thing that you did at age nine? Did, were the, was the pump available 25 years ago? Hmm. So you were, you were injecting 
you're taking your blood sugar four times a day and injecting insulin. That was a lot of responsibility for a nine-year-old. I guess your parents at that point had to monitor your condition 24 hours a day. Uh, and then they helped me. I, I had always been very, very independent. Um, so I, I kind of took the reins. I mean, when I was a kid, like nine, nine years old, they were definitely on me a bit more. Um, and then I became very defined as a teenager, right? um, you know, and, uh, and got frustrated a lot of times, um, with, with it and everything. But then, yeah, in college, I started to really take control of things. And I got my, my first pump when I was 13. Um, Okay. I no longer use the pump now. I've been off the pump for about three three years now. Um, I felt that it wasn't working as well as it used to, and um, I kind of have a good system because I'm so regimented with what I eat and yeah. and my schedule. Uh, the injections work well enough for me that I don't need the pump. Um, but the other thing is the continuous glucose monitor, the CGM that I have. It's a game changer. Um, it's always a game changer because you can check as many times a day as you want, but to get that continuous um, uh, level uh, and which direction it's going is, is a huge benefit. So then you start to see trends. I can study like what I do and how my blood sugar reacts in, in real time. Um, so it's a, it's been a game changer. Yeah. And I love that people like me can have one. I'm probably going to have my mm-hmm. healthcare provider um, order. I guess it's a prescription. She calls it in another mm-hmm. CGM for me because I'm finishing up the glucose uh, revolution by the glucose goddess. And so she breaks it down more for people like me who are not diabetic and I have very low fasting insulin. I'm a you know, five-year intermittent faster, but I still want, because she says in the book, and you're going to now probably agree with this, for every spike and dip you have in glucose, it puts you one step closer to a heart attack. And so the variabilities is what we want to avoid. So kind of address that. Yeah, it's the it's the oscillations in glucose that seem to be most damaging. It's the big shifts in in levels, um, and so blood sugars up and down all day long is way more damaging than a than a higher blood sugar that's stable all day long. Um, wow, so, that's so interesting. Yeah, um, and so the the problem or the suspected issue with higher blood sugars is that um, things can get damaged by glucose. Um, called glycation. Uh, we can get these things called advanced glycation in products. So like people may be familiar with the term HbA1c or hemoglobin A1c. It's, it's what lots of diabetics get to measure their average glucose over the last three, four months or so because a red blood cell lasts about 120 days. Um, and when they're, what they're measuring in that test, I mean, there's some um, uh, debate as to how accurate the test is, but what they're measuring in that test is the percentage of red blood cells that have been damaged by glucose. Oh, and normally, okay. Normally, yeah. Uh, normally, there, a certain percentage of them will will be damaged by glucose just based on normal physiology. However, if a higher percentage of them is, it means that blood sugar has been higher um, for um, for that amount of time that that 120 days or so. However, there's some issues with that test in that, like, it's been shown that in people who um, are really healthy, their red blood cells live longer. Um, and so if they live longer, there's more opportunity for them to get glycated and get damaged. So oh, if okay. you get that, you may you may have a falsely high hemoglobin A1C. Also, um, uh, and conversely, I guess, um, people who are generally unhealthy or more unhealthy, um, red blood cells don't live as long. And so if theirs is normal within a normal range, but the blood that's based on red blood cells living 120 days. But if they're only living like 80 days or, or 100 days or something like that, then they're getting a falsely normal reading. Um, so there's some debate on how accurate that test is. And I'd much rather use um, other numbers like uh, fasting insulin and things like that. But um, but yeah, that's that's what um, that's what the issue with high blood sugar is, is that things get damaged by glucose. Well, let's talk about that. Um, for a type one diabetic, the the risk for you long term, your parents probably heard that um, your son can lose his vision, um, he can have organ damage, um, amputation. You know, we think about because of the high glucose. So insulin's role is to lower the glucose and usher the gl- glucose to the cells. Am I saying that accurately? I mean, that's that's one of the roles of insulin. Yeah. Um, it does a lot of things, but yes, that is, that is one role of it. And, and that's one role for you, especially, or anyone, you know, 88% of the public is metabolically unfit. So mm. a lot of people, when, as you know, when they check their fasting insulin, healthcare providers are blown away because they'll go, your glucose was fine. Your mm. hemoglobin A1C was 
5.2 or whatever. And those are really arbitrary numbers we know now. So um, in your case, you, you're trying to keep long term. You've been doing this a lot longer than the average Western diet consuming fat American who just realized they've had way too many M&Ms and um, cheeseburgers and French fries to really benefit them. So you've been looking at it a long time. Do you think you've mitigated some of the damage uh, because you were on insulin as a child? I mean, it had to have, like you've protected yourself from having damage, even though you've had it a long time. Mm-hmm. I, I guess somewhat. Just, yeah. Has, so that probably played into the risk of cardiovascular disease because of long-term high glucose or spikes and dips. Yeah. So, so the spikes and dips, um, uh, they cause the damage, the glycation damage. And, they, okay. and like when, when things get glycated, they become free radicals. They become damaging to themselves Got so, it. in themselves. So uh, then they go and damage other tissues. So they contribute to, and there's actually research I talk about in my book that shows that advanced glycation end products, these things that have been damaged by glucose can directly start the process of atherosclerosis. Um, <gasps> oh. like, yeah. So they, because it's, it's, it's oxidative stress. And things right. that, that damage the lining of the artery that cause atherosclerosis and advanced glycation end products are one of those things. So if I have higher blood sugars um, or blood sugars that are oscillating up and down more than other people, I have more um, damage from glucose, which then in, in turn causes damage to the lining of the endothelia. And the body is forced to repair that um, in some way. And usually it repairs itself pretty regularly or readily if, um, if there's insulin signaling. Because the cells that line the, the line the artery are dependent on the signaling of insulin to get um, to signal growth and repair. Um, so if they get damaged, there's supposed to be this normal wear and tear of the artery. Um, but if they get damaged and there's no insulin signaling that tells them to repair themselves, then that damage perpetuates, and um, and um, and the body is forced to do something else. So it has to take cholesterol and and calcium and things like that and basically use it as spackle to repair that artery or else it's going to rupture. I see. And with, rupture is a way worse thing than some atherosclerosis in the, in the, in the short term. Um, and so it's the insulin signaling that's really important. That's why insulin resistance is such a problem. Uh, and like type 2 diabetes, that's insulin resistance. Um, so, so, yeah. Um, I used to think that insulin was the enemy because... I know the long-term damage, but it, it's it's essential for every cell in our body mm-hmm. because the its role. So it's kind of a double-edged sword, you know, in in its its function and use. I mean, it, it's obviously very valuable. Is this a personal question? If I ask you what your hemoglobin A one C is on average, or what your fasting insulin is, is that like asking you how much you weigh because you're a type well, one diabetic? No, not at okay, all. Um, no. So like my, my hemoglobin A1C stays around six, okay. um, which yeah. for a type one diabetic yeah. is pretty darn yeah. good. Yeah. Um, I like to think, um, it's fine. I mean, I know, I mean, they, they say that as a type one, they want it below seven. Um, okay. so they, they'd be happy if I was at seven, they being Western medicine or whatever, right. I'm not happy with it at seven. I want it lower than that. And, um, so yeah, I'm pretty happy with that. Um, and then the fasting insulin on a type one diabetic really, it, it doesn't, I'm, I'm, I would love to to see a study done on you know on that because it's really hard to gauge that because I'm injecting my own insulin, um, right? So I'm injecting it into right. my body. Whereas right. like whereas whereas like someone else, a normal person, or even a type two body diabetic that's still making insulin, it's it's going right from the pancreas into the bloodstream. Um, so it's just it, I I don't know how accurate that level is, or if it's even possible to get an accurate fasting insulin level on a type one diabetic. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, and I, I, I would like to see, I would, I wish I could know like someone who was eating a similar diet to me, how much insulin their body was secreting. So I can compare it to how much insulin I'm having to inject. You're talking about a non-diabetic, non-diabetic. Right, if they non-diabetic. had an identical or DNA, they match you as much as they could. Yeah. 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 Yeah, like if I had a twin or something yeah, like right, that. Right, because we wouldn't know. It's so bioindividual yeah. or the way we metabolize things. But yeah, I can I can see how right. you'd be curious. So then do you chest test then your fasting insulin? I have before, but it it uh I, I kind of take it with a grain of salt. I don't really know how to interpret it because I'm not making my own insulin anymore. Like my body's not making it. 
So I don't know if injecting it leads to the same levels yeah. of fasting as someone, as someone who would, because so I'm injecting it into tissues. I'm not injecting it into blood. I'm, I'm wow. hoping that it all gets absorbed. Okay. You know, um, there's so many different things because your body secretes insulin from the pancreas. And when it does that, it triggers things to the pancreas. Like it triggers it to stop uh, producing glucagon, which is this thing that, that goes out and tells your body to mobilize glucose and things like that. And then um, uh, at the liver, it tells it to stop taking um, fatty acids and making glucose from them. It's all, it's all these things that are designed to lower blood sugar. Like insulin signals these things to stop making sugar, right? Um, and then it, and it goes in the periphery and then it tells the body to stop mobilizing fats to make glucose. Um, and if the blood sugar is still elevated at a time, then it will take glucose and shuttle it into the cell. Um, so it's like this big step process that happens. But that's um, one of the most important steps is ushering glucose to the cells. But it, you're saying if, if it needs to, uh, oh, okay. If it, if it lowers the blood sugar by stopping those other mechanisms, then like it stopping the body from okay. making more glucose um, in the liver and everything. And then those other steps too, then it won't need to shuttle into the cells. Blood sugar will be what it needs to be. But the fourth thing that it does is it shuttles glucose in the cells. If it needs to, if blood sugar is still too high after it does those other things. Um, so whereas like, I'm like, that's secreting it. And, and the way that it, from where it's secreted and where it goes next and everything is, is different than where if I'm injecting it into my arm. Yeah. Um, but it still gets into the bloodstream and still does thing, but it does them a little bit out of order. So it's, it's, it's a little interesting. I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I would want, I, I need to, um, look more into it. And I don't know if there's anything to look into at this point. I don't know if anybody's looked into yeah. that as much. It would be a study of one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It'd be the Dr. Hussey study. Um, mm -hmm. can a type one diabetic become type two? No. Yeah, I think so. Oh, you think I so? I think so. Yeah. Because you could. You know, because I'm not insulin resistant. Um, no, you're insulin sensitive, right? Yeah, I'm insulin sensitive. I said I just don't make insulin. Therefore, okay. I have the same I have the same effects uh, as far as like blood sugar go as a type two diabetic who's making insulin and just not responding to it. They're insulin resistant. Um, yes. So I could so I could still I become insulin resistant and be resistant to the insulin that I'm injecting I rather see. than a type two diabetic who's resistant to the insulin their body is making. But you could, I could still get into an unhealthy state and become insulin resistant and then be type two diabetic as well. That would suck. But, yeah. That, that so would be the worst that's news ever. Not going to happen to me. So. No, I understand. Um, well, then we'll, I mean, because let's talk about your, your diet. You don't eat a Western diet. You probably don't have seed oils. Um, mm -hmm. Do you, do you stack your meals in such a way where you do like the glucose goddess says to do something green first, the fiber to help. Uh, mitigate the glucose, and then she does protein and fat. Then she does a carb. Then she does fruit. How how do you look at a portion if you were to be served food? How, how what would you go for first? Well, I don't think it's so much about calories or portions or anything like that. As long as you're eating the right type of calories, and you're eating the and you're eating whole foods, right. that's really the most important thing. Because when we eat processed foods, it really messes with the way or how those foods hit our bloodstream and when. Um, and so, um, to me, animal foods are essential. Um, we need, we need good fats. We need saturated fats. Uh, we need the nutrients from animal foods that we don't get, um, from other foods. And they're also, for me, I focus, I'm pretty low carb, um, because it's just easier to be a pancreas and predict what blood sugars are going to sure. do when you don't eat something that raises blood sugar the fastest and the highest, which is, which is glucose, which is carbohydrates. Um, and so I, I stay away from those. And if I do have carbohydrates, it's a very you know select amount that I know exactly how much insulin to give myself. Um, and and even then, it's it's um, on occasion. Um, but my my diet is pretty um, animal based, um, and my um, and and that's just easiest to control blood sugars. Um, but it's but I do have plants, and I uh, and I don't think that there's. I think that we get way too caught up, like I said, in how many calories you eat, and um, and all these measuring outs of things. I think that you should eat when you're hungry and eat until you're 80, 85% full and eat whole foods and the rest will take care of itself. But that's provided because I've done a deep dive into um, our brains <clears throat> and the hypothalamus and our satiety hormones. And that it's only when your satiety hormones are sensitive because, you know, you get leptin resistant. And so we want to become mm -hmm. leptin sensitive, which tells you to back away from the fried chicken. 
So you're still talking about it's kind of a niche market of people because the only way to have where your brain, your um, leptin recognizes your full or cholecystic kinin that is released when you've reached satiety, that's only for eating whole foods because the packaged foods or the drive-through foods, they're not, I mean, we know we could eat three pieces of cake and not be full. We'd be sick because of the sugar rush, the fructose, mm-hmm. but we sometimes aren't full from that, but we would never eat two loaded baked potatoes or two steaks Yeah, because we'd have real satiety. Yeah. It's hard to overeat steak for sure. Um, because you're, you're getting triggered society. And, and to me, when I look, the more and more I look into it, um, the more I think that it's the vegetable oils that are driving the, mm-hmm. the, um, uh, non satiety signaling, mm-hmm. you know, that they, um, and, and I like the way, um, I've heard other people put it in that, you know, when you're hungry, your body wants, it wants energy and it wants nutrients. Um, <laughs> For sure. and so energy is, is fat and carbohydrates. Yeah. Nutrients are proteins, vitamins, and minerals. Um, and if you're eating foods that don't satisfy all those requirements, then you're going to still be hungry. Um, so if I'm eating a cupcake, which is a lot of energy in the form right. of fat and carbohydrates, but no, but no nutrients, nutrients right. you could eat four or five, six cupcakes, right. Until you're sick. Right. And then, but if you eat a steak, you've got fat, you've got one form of energy, which is really important. Fat and carbs at the same time seems to be problematic, but um, if you look into nature, the only real food that has fat and carbs at the same time is breast milk, which what does breast milk do? It fattens a baby. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what it does. <laughs> um, and so, so if you look into nature though, there's, there's rarely any foods that have, uh, lots of fats and lots of carbohydrates at the same time. So when you're eating that steak, you're getting a good energy source in the form of fat and getting tons of protein and, and tons of vitamins and minerals. Um, like that's one of the perfect foods in, in my opinion, because it's, it, it triggers satiation in that way. And when you look at how the body, the cells metabolize vegetable oils, they actually, um, uh, like oxidative stress or free radicals get kind of a bad rap, but they're actually signaling molecules. They're there for a reason. It's just when they get out of hand, they become a problem. But when you, when you eat saturated fat, it actually triggers, um, a little bit more production of the free radicals. Um, because that's what triggers the body to stop eating. It's what triggers satiation. Okay. And so saturated fats, one of the reasons they get a bad rap is because of that. It's like, oh, it's more oxidative stress. And it's like, well, that's the signal that tells you to stop eating. Whereas if you, if you um, don't get that signal, like the vegetable oils, the polyunsaturated fats, when they're metabolized, they don't create as much oxidative stress and you just keep eating them and keep eating them. And then you get too much energy. Um, and then you end up getting more oxidative stress because it was never enough to trigger satiety. So you just keep eating. Um, so the, 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 uh, biochemistry of the metabolism of these certain types of fats is really important to understand. Um, when we talk about what triggers, um, satiation and then long-term insulin resistance. Yeah. Satiety is a magical, I think I just now think it's the key. And I do think we are talking about foods that trigger satiety. And, you know, what's a shame is, gosh, we're having one right now in Arkansas. We do cereal drives for the poor. That's the last thing they need is to wake mm-hmm. up on an empty stomach with, you know, where their glucose is at a point, you know, the lowest it'll be probably in 24 hours. And then we're feeding them a bowl of sugar with a glass of milk. Mm. But I understand we're trying to partner with the poor to feed these kids who don't have the summer program where they're going to schools and getting crappy food because that's a whole nother story. So yeah. uh, then, then let's talk about breakfast. You know, Dr. Kellogg said it was the most important meal of the day. Wonder why he had that as a catchphrase. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he sold cereal. Um, right. mm-hmm. um, what do you recommend then? There, there are families home for the summer. What, what can they do then to help mitigate? We're trying to keep our glucose low. We're trying to keep our, insulin low, right? I guess that's Mm -hmm. the exact term. So what can we do then to feed kids for summer breakfast that produces satiety and doesn't do a spike in a dip with their glucose? Bacon and eggs. That's the, that's right there. Make an omelet, make a, you know, eggs, eggs are the perfect food for breakfast. Or, you know, if, if kids are eating, um, relatively well in the other meals of the day, like generally low carb then skip breakfast. Um, you know, uh, you don't have to eat it um, as long as you're eating two other meals, the other part of the day that are going to be satiating and and encourage fat burning, because that's what's going to get you through the uh, the, the skipping breakfast. Um, but like you, it, you know, your mother would have never let you skip breakfast. 
Of course not. Um, because, because those kids are acting crazy when they're, when their blood sugars are going crazy, you know? And so then their blood sugar dips after that, um, um, after that crazy high carb meal the night before or after the sugary breakfast, and then it spikes the blood sugar up and then it crashes back down. The kids are going crazy. You feed them again, you know? Um, that's what, that's what temporarily, um, fixes that issue. Um, but it's always going to create this never ending cycle of, of ups and downs. So, um, whereas if the, the carbs are whole food carbs, but they're, but the focus is more on good fats and whole foods, then, uh, that kid's going to be kids, especially are going to, you know, adapt to fat burning so quick. Um, and they're, they may not even asking for food, three meals a day. This whole idea of three meals a day was yes, invented by the cereal industry. Um, because that's what they made and that's what the, the food that's when the food was eaten so they wanted people to think breakfast was the most important meal and that uh, and that it was three meals a day um, but uh, it's just not the case uh, it sounds like you have adopted an intermittent fasting regimen lifestyle or yeah. do something of that manner what what so because of your situation is a little more precarious because of so in the morning, we know the pancreas releases one last push of glucose, the dawn effect. Does that? Mm-hmm. No, yours doesn't because you don't have a pancreas. No, it does. Yeah, I have a pancreas. I just don't oh, have the cells have to make insulin. Okay. So yeah. do you have that dawn effect yeah, opportunity in the morning? So yeah. what will your blood sugar run in the morning when you first check it, when you first wake up? Uh, I mean, it depends on the night before, um, what I ate the night before. Um, that's the hardest thing about type one is, is that... Uh, if I go to bed and I ate something and sometimes it takes, like, especially the way I eat, like the higher protein that I eat, it takes a little bit longer to digest. Um, oh. and so sometimes it, cause protein will raise blood sugar a little bit, not near as much as a carbohydrate. Oh. But if I eat a high protein meal at night, um, and I give all the insulin I would need right after the meal, I would go low because it hasn't hit the bloodstream yet. And it's not going to do so for, you know, three, four hours or so. Okay. So if I go to bed and, um, it's just like this timing thing. I have to remember before bed to give myself a little bit more. Um, but in the morning, it's usually running, you know, I shoot for anywhere between 80 or, or 70 and, and 150 as a type one. That's, that's oh, what okay. I want to shoot for. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so that's, that's means I'm doing good, but you really like it below 120. Um, but, uh, sometimes, you know, I'll wake up and it'll be 85, 90, 95, something like that. And, uh, and if I don't do anything, I just wake up and start my day and don't eat anything, don't exercise, don't eat anything. And it'll go up to like 150, 160. On its um, own. On its own. Sometimes that high. Not always that high, but sometimes that high. Um, and I like to think that maybe sometimes I ate a little bit later that night. And I, when I woke up, I was still digesting a little bit. Wow. Um, and I do think that I do think that I have a little bit of what's called gastroparesis where there's yes. delayed stomach emptying just because of being type 1 for so long um, and the... Um, uh, the effect on the autonomic nervous system that it has. Um, it's just, it delays that a little bit. Um, so I'm always dealing with those types of things, but like I said, with the CGM, I can, I can see what's happening and notice trends and and get a handle on it. Yeah. Hey kids, let me take a moment right now just to introduce myself. For those of you new to the Lisa Fisher said empire, well, I mean, I hope it's an empire someday. Um, I'll tell you that I'm a certified health coach and how I got here. I started taking classes in 2020. Yeah, when the world was falling apart, we wanted to know more about health. I started taking classes online with the Institute for Integrative Nutrition in New York. Great way to do that. Great way to partner with the school with outstanding success, outstanding reputation. Dr. Mark Hyman comes and speaks. Dr. Weil comes and speaks. You have these guest lecturers and then you have PhDs and other people who are advanced in their particular study to help you equip people to have better health. Now, no medical advice is given as a health coach, but you can partner with people who are wondering, what can I do to overcome blank? And it's really exciting when that breakthrough happens. And it's because you got the knowledge from IIN. For more information, go to the show notes. You can find out more and you could start the rest of your life. You could start changing it today with IIN. So would you recommend then a CGM for anyone listening who, I mean, they're, I think it was 75 bucks when I did it. My insurance didn't cover it because I'm not type yeah. one. Um, and, and I think I got it for like two weeks. That's probably, you know, the only glimpse I would look into myself, but do you think that's good for the general population? Yeah, I, I think that um, they're very useful. Uh, I mean, you're going to see 
I, I, I'm not really into, and like lots of biohackers will hate me for saying this, but I'm not really into, um, you know, obsessively getting the numbers and always staying on top of them, yeah. especially if you have, if you're not diabetic of any type. Um, I think that they can be really interesting to get and see how your body reacts to certain foods, reacts to exercise, reacts to like as far as blood sugar goes. Um, but people like, sometimes people freak out though, like when they get them and they're like, oh my gosh, my blood sugar spiked up to, to 130 or something. And I'm just like, that's normal based on the meal you just ate or, or whatever, or based on the exercise you just did or something like that. Like health to me is the ability of the body to adapt to certain circumstances, right? So if you're not adapting uh, and then bringing things back to normal, that's, that's, that's poor health is when you can't bring things back to normal. So that would be type two diabetes where you can't bring the blood sugar back down. But if the blood sugar goes up and then it comes back down within two hours, then that's a normal response. Um, so I think that they can be useful for generally everybody in the population for a short period of time. And then they're more useful long-term for diabetics, people who have insulin resistance, but aren't diabetic, um, um, type one diabetics, you know, various people with, um, you know, with said, you know, Ill illnesses and ailments. I think they're much more beneficial, but they're, I think they're especially useful, um, for people just to see, you know, cause even people who don't have a disease and if they put one on and they eat a cake or something like that, they can see, oh my gosh, this is what happened. Um, this is what my body's having to deal with. This is what I'm doing. So it's kind of like this direct feedback for them to see, Yeah. you know, um, which, which can be very useful. I totally freaked out when I had mine. Hmm. I totally panicked um, in that same way. And so, I, though I don't have a relationship with an endocrinologist now because I don't like, I typically, I mean, I hate to make a blanket statement, but they're kind of accountants of the medical field. They just look at a little number and they don't, hmm. I mean, the guy I have is 85 years old and he took care of me 30 years ago. So I reached out to him and he said, my dear, you're fine. You're no, this is how it should do. And I, I said, I did that. I went, it went to 150. He goes, what'd you have? I went ice cream at two in the afternoon. You know, mm -hmm. after I guess I'd open, I, I sometimes eat it on weekends, sometimes like on, at noon. And so maybe I ate again at two or three and had ice cream. Mm -hmm. And he said, your body just responded the normal way. Now hush. Yeah. So it, now that I don't have that panic about me and now that I understand more, um, I think I do. I, I like, I like to understand. That's why I want to do another trial with one and um, have it for a couple of weeks. But so let's go to endocrinologists. You probably have to see an endocrinologist because you're a type one diabetic, right? Uh, yeah, I do, but it's more just to get prescriptions. <laughs> yeah. A drug dealer. Uh, cause, cause <laughs> I, as a chiropractor, I can't, I can't write prescriptions in most States, uh, nor would I want to. Um, but also I could, even if I could, I could write my own. So, um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's more like, it's more to touch base with them and, um, appease them in a certain way and then get prescriptions because I need those. Well, under that umbrella, so under my umbrella of autoimmune conditions, um, you could see, but in fact, when I was diagnosed with vitiligo, the first thing the dermatologist said was, do you have type one diabetes? And I went, hmm. no. He said, do you have Hashimoto's? And I didn't know I did. I, I knew something was wrong. I'd been saying for a few years, mm -hmm. it took me four years to get diagnosed. I said, I've been saying for years, I do, but you know, no one will listen to me. But I remember he said, well, it's all under, he explained to me the umbrella. And so whether, it, you know, there's an arthritis under there, there's a gastroparesis under there under the umbrella. So mm -hmm. under that autoimmune umbrella, and I understand you keep a short leash on your health and you you aren't getting any more illnesses and neither am I, but hmm. what were some of the things that they warned you about in the beginning that you could then have because of the autoimmune umbrella that I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah. Just generally other autoimmune yeah. conditions, you know, like once you have one autoimmune condition, you're more, yeah. you're more likely to get other ones, but that's, that's merely to me, that's because they don't understand what causes autoimmunity. So they're not telling you to heal your gut. You know, they're just saying, okay, let's manage your autoimmunity without, right paying attention to India. That's why people are more likely to get another autoimmune disease because the same thing that caused the first one is still happening. Um, so unless we correct that, we're not going to stop these autoimmune diseases from potentially developing. Um, but if we did that, I think that honestly, I think that if I had known what I know now about autoimmune disease, um, when I was diagnosed at nine, I could have reversed the process. Wow. Um, That's a big but statement. But well, it's a big statement, but it's also been proven in case studies. Um, it's happened in, in really. Children. Yeah, in Hungary, they're in this. The, there's a group called Paleo Medicina, and they have, I think, they have two case studies now where they reverse type one in a child um, by basically putting a mom with what they call a Paleolithic ketogenic diet, 
um, which is incre- incredibly gut healing and blood sugar stabilizing. And so they stopped the autoimmune process from happening while there were still beta cells making insulin. So those beta cells could, could, um, you know, divide and make new cells to replace the ones that had already died. I see. And, and this, and the child is now doing well, um, you know, no insulin, no diabetes of any sort, yeah. um, because they did it soon enough, but you know, after a while, cause they, it's always like when you're diagnosed with type one, they, they tell you there's this honeymoon phase where you're still making some insulin because there's still some beta cells around the body's in the process of killing them. Right. But if I stop that process of killing them, then if, as long as there's some cells left, they can produce new cells and repopulate themselves and, and the disease process go away. That's the theory anyways. Um, whereas, but if, but if you don't, and once they're all gone, they're gone. Um, and so mm. it's way past time for that yeah. for me. Okay. So, um, that, so that's yeah. okay. Yeah. You, yeah. I mean, you, you've done incredible work with your health anyway. Well, let's switch over now to cardiovascular disease. Mm. Uh, number one, that the, we do know that the, Dr. Hyman just posted this week, there's a, the connection. He's really talking about the metabolically unfit uh, mm. population, just saying the insulin resistance is often the root to this cardiovascular uh, disease, even though yours is an insulin resistance, but it probably was long-term um, glycation and all the other mm. fancy words. So mm-hmm. d- did you have a warning that you were about to go into some type of cardiac arrest? Nope. You just nope. woke up one Nothing. day and had the chest pain and thought no, something? No, so I, I, I mean, I, I had a, you know what a CAC score is? Coronary artery, coronary artery calcium score. Yeah. So it's a CT scan of the coronary arteries. I had one done six months prior to my heart attack, and it was zero, which means there was what? no calcification in my arteries. And now it doesn't measure soft plaque. It doesn't measure if there's there's soft plaque. It just measures if there's calcification, which means that my arteries have been healthy. And if there was some soft plaque, it was healing itself. It wasn't becoming calcified. Um, and when when the when they went in to place the stent. Um, they said that there was minimal to absolutely no atherosclerosis in any of my coronary arteries. It was just a giant clot that formed in my oh. left anterior descending artery. So I, 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 so basically usually a clot forms when there's like atherosclerosis and part of it breaks off, like the soft plaques yes. break off mm-hmm. and, and the body has this clotting reaction to, to heal that. And it, and it forms a clot there. Um, but he said that he didn't really see any preformed atherosclerosis. He just saw this giant clot forming, um, that had formed and, and blocked the left anterior descending uh, artery completely. Um, but yeah, so no, I had, you know, I, I had no chest pain. I had no, uh, anything, um, prior to this event. The, so like I, not shortness um, of breath. Hmm, I mean, I'd been under a lot of stress, um, from, for a lot of different things for a while. And then a day and a half before, um, the heart attack, I got very distressing news about a family member, um, that, it, the worst part about it was that there was nothing I could do. Yeah. It was just like a wait and see yeah. if the situation mm-hmm. resolved itself type of thing. Um, and so I heard about that Sunday night, um, went to work Monday, kind of in a, a haze, um, and then woke up Tuesday morning and did a workout. Uh, I did an intense, um, like hit training workout. Um, oh, wow. And, and then about 30 minutes later, I had this intense pain in my chest. It was unmistakable. A tightening? Um, people, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was a tightening. It was, but it was pain really. It wasn't even that necessarily a tightening. It was just okay. pain. Um, people talk about, you know, pain down the arm. I never mm-hmm. had any of that pain in your jaw or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, I was, um, I mean, I was really sweaty and everything, but, um, after a while, but, um, it was just intense pain in my chest, but it was pretty unmistakable. I mean, there's people that say, you know, I had a heart attack, but I walked around for a day. It was like my jaw was hurting or something or whatever. And mine was, mine was pretty pretty evident that something was going on. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, um, they went in, they put the stent in and, um, you know, they kept harping on cholesterol levels and everything like that. Um, that's all they would tell me. And then I kept asking them about other things cause you know, my background and the things I know, and it was just to shut down a conversation, um, <laughs> about, about my care and about like wanting to look at different things, even they were looking at their watches going, can we discharge him? Whereas any other hospital, you know, you're waiting at discharge. You were well, first usually after, <laughs> usually after a heart attack like that, like a widow maker, which is what that is. Um, wow. Um, you're in the hospital for a week or more. And I was there for three days. <laughs> yeah. They were, they were really looking to, but I was, you out. I was itching to get home anyways, because yeah. I, I was just wanting, I mean, the food was terrible. Um, oh, nobody would listen to me. Um, I wanted to get home and start my own, like, you know, heart healing journey. Yeah. Um, being with that happening. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that I was in this, 
I had been type 1 diabetic for a long time, which predisposed me to imbalance in the autonomic nervous system. It predisposed me to insulin resistance, even though I'm not insulin resistant. It predisposed me to the glycation, like I was talking yeah. about, um, that kind of stuff. And so those things were there, but I don't think those were the, the driving force. I think the driving force was the stress. Um, and then I got that stressful news. And so I was under a lot of psychological stress at that moment. And then I did the hit workout. And I think, I think, and I, people are going to be mad because hit training is very popular these days. Um, but in a state like that, I should not have done that. I don't think, but I don't you think didn't I should have done that. You didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. And I didn't, I, I mean, I knew I was very stressed and I was thinking, oh, I just need to work out. I need to do something, you know, but I should have done a lighter workout. I should have, because I've actually found some evidence um, in some studies um, that suggest that intense exercise can trigger myocardial infarction. Um, wow. And so I think that's what happened. I think that's why my arteries were generally healthy, yet I just had this giant clot form. Um, wow. And, and, and happened to be in that place because this, the, the coronary arteries are under the most pressure. Um, and again, that's all speculation. That's just what I put together as far as my theory as to why that happened to me. Um, and I hope that people can learn from it and, and maybe take from it and, and same with my book and everything. But um, we'll put your yeah. uh, in the show notes will be a link to your book and your social media. Um, this is the part of the program that we're going to make people mad. And remember, my attorney <laughs> wanted me to tell everyone that this is not medical advice, what we're giving. Correct. We're giving uh, personally what's happened to you and what you've learned. Um, but when even Dr. Mark Hyman, the functional medicine cardiologist, from the Cleveland Clinic, the heart capital of the world says, get off statins. Um, were they trying to push a statin on you? Were they trying to tell you that it was your cholesterol? Oh, yeah, the whole time. Uh, I mean, even the, so even like I'm laying there after they did the procedure and finally the chest pain went away because they opened it up. Um, and uh, the interventional cardiologist that came up to me, that did the procedure, came up to me and said, um, you know, I saw almost no atherosclerosis. I just saw the giant clot and we, went and put the stent in and it went in beautifully, but you know, your cholesterol is really high. And really it wasn't even that high. I mean, what it was, was like it? Total, my total cholesterol was like, I don't remember between 200 and 250. That is there. the stupidest thing I've ever heard <laughs> yeah. for them to even say that. Yeah. And so, and, and so, and my LDL was somewhere like, I think it was like 167 or something like that, um, which is where I want it to be right. um, based on the research and the evidence. Because that, you want I, your sex hormones to communicate. Yeah. Because I, because cholesterol is essential for the body. And, right. and that's actually the levels that associate with the least all cause mortality. But um, anyway, so that was the first. And then, yeah. So in the hospital, I was, I was um, prescribed 11 different medications. <laughs> oh, and there um, are 11 medications you probably didn't fill. Uh, I did not. Well, I took, um, I took the blood thinner for a while because there's a stent in my artery now uh, yeah. and my body's not used to that. Um, so while that was healing and while that my body was getting used to that stent, I did take the blood thinner, um, for about six months, um, uh, five or six months. Yeah. Um, but then I, I've since talked to a in the know cardiologist and we had a good discussion. He said, he said, yeah, six months would probably be good for that. Um, and I did at first, take the blood, one of the blood pressure, they recommended three different blood pressure medications, but I took one of them for like a week. Um, and I was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Um, I, there's a much better way. Once I understood why they were trying to get me to take it, um, which they wouldn't explain to me at first. Um, once I understood that, I was like, oh, I can do that in many different ways. Um, again, not recommending that people do this. I like, understand. But this is just what I did. Right. Um, but yeah, they recommended me like these anti-clotting medications because I was in a bed, even though I was up walking around, they, they recommended Pain medications they recommended, um, or they prescribed uh, three different blood pressure Wait, medications. Did they talk to you about your diet and try to go low fat? <laughs> yes. See, um, I would start laughing. I would, I would bust out laughing if someone did that. To me. Well, they well the big thing after a heart attack is they want to prevent heart failure because this this area of the heart has um, been damaged and that can uh, predispose us to heart failure for for different reasons. Um, and so they came in and gave me this heart failure diet, which is low fat, low salt. Um, which there's absolutely no evidence for that, especially low salt. Um, there's actually evidence that, that, um, low salt can cause insulin resistance and cause atherosclerosis and things like that. So, uh, and I talk about that in my book too, but, um, but yeah, so they, they came in and talked to me about that to prevent the heart failure, but, um, and they, and they wanted to take pressure off my heart with the blood pressure medications, even though my blood pressure, um, is notoriously on the lower end. And actually I took, when I took the one of them for a week, uh, the first three days I took it was in the hospital and, um, 
I woke up one night because it was burning up in the room and I went to go turn off the thermostat and I almost passed out. Like I almost fell over because my blood pressure was so low. It got you too low. And I, yeah. And I went and when they came in and took my blood pressure in the middle of the night, cause they wake you up three times a night, they, uh, uh, it was like 92 over 52 or something like that. And I was just like, why <laughs> this is too low. I'm, I'm going to die of low blood pressure. So, um, so yeah. Stupid. And then I, I got up and, and I didn't get up fast. I mean, I, I was, I was asleep. And so I got up pretty slow and, and I still almost feel over and I had to grab the wall, but it was just no, like, there was also blood pressure medication that they recommended to me that has been shown to cause insulin resistance. Um, and for a type one diabetic, like they, even for anybody, but especially for type one diabetic, like, why would you want to do that? Is that, that the common one? Lisinopril? Um, no, it's metropolol. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Which is the other one? Right. Yeah. If, if I'm recalling yeah. correctly. Um, yeah. So anyways, it, but it just goes that they weren't treating me as the patient. They were just, right. they had a cookie cutter recipe mm -hmm. that they do for anybody who's had a heart attack. And they mm -hmm. weren't looking at the fact that I took care of myself and I was generally healthy, um, even though I had a heart attack. Um, and that I was 34 years old and they just gave me the recipe that everybody gets. And you're not overweight and you're not right. insulin resistant and you work right. out every day and you have fish oil in your diet. I mean, all the things. Yeah. That and, and that's just the shortcoming though, because, and, and none of them had time to really talk to me, um, about any of this. Um, and, and, and so, you know, but, but I'm happy to say that, you know, I took the blood thinner for a while because of the, the stint in there. Um, but otherwise I took none of their medications, which they told me there was no chance I would ever not develop heart failure if I didn't take the medications. Um, but as, as I have not developed that and at my six month echocardiogram, when they looked at my heart function again, because the tissue damage had created, um, the ejection fraction was down. Mine was like 30 to 40% and it's supposed to be like anywhere from 50 to 70. Um, at six months, uh, the echo, it was, it was 55 um, so oh. it was the, it was wow. in the normal range. Um, and they said that there was after the heart attack, that the middle part of the heart muscle, um, between the two ventricles is what had the damage done. And, um, they said it was pretty akinetic, which means it wasn't conducting signal. It was pretty damaged. Um, and at the, at the, um, six month echo, it was, it was pretty much normal. So you reversed um, it. Yeah. Um, without the medications, with doing what I do, they know that you're not compliant, that you're very low compliance on this. Yeah, I mean, the cardiologist I went to, um, he knows that. I mean, but I, like I said, I talked to another cardiologist outside of that setting, um, who's in the know. But but the one I went to, he knows that I'm not doing it, and he's he has to. But frankly, I I understand. I mean, he may not understand what I'm uh, what I'm saying, but I understand what he's doing. And that if he doesn't recommend these things, he's liable if anything happens to me. That's what I'm sitting here thinking just because so, I was raised by lawyers. It, we are a litigious society and yeah. doctors do have to, you know, cover their butts and say things and do things because big pharma is, you know, promoted a lot of what they've done. Now, what about aspirin therapy? Are we over that as a society? Or are we back to because someone told me they quit? They're not they're telling people not to do that anymore. True or false? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know what they're saying um, in, in within Western medicine, but I can tell you that what the research shows is that aspirin doesn't really prevent primary cardiac events. Okay, um, it just it just doesn't, and there's risk of bleeding and uh, yeah. kidney damage and yeah. things like that uh, from taking aspirin all the time. Um, however, there is some evidence that it's it's effective for um, uh, prevention of secondary events. So after someone's had a heart attack already, so like it you. does seem. You so can, like me, yeah, okay. and to me, that's because there's a stent in there, which is a foreign object. And so you're, oh, yeah. you're reducing the risk of clotting from that foreign object being in there because you're taking a low dose aspirin. Um, however, okay. I don't know what types of people these studies were done in, you know, were they <laughs> right. done in the general population who's already inflamed and that's right. And like, and, and has blood clotting stuff already. Like the, the blood's more viscous because it's, uh, there's not enough magnesium in the blood or something like that. Or are they done in, in uh, people who are taking care of themselves? I doubt that they're done in people who are really taking care of themselves. So, well, Because remember, that's a small group of the population. If we say 88% is metabolically exactly. unfit, the 12% of us are like, give me a break. Let me handle this. Yeah. And, but they have nothing. They don't have any science on it. It's the same thing women had with the uh, big study that women had 20 years ago that said women um, should never take um, hormone replacement um, because they would have a heart attack and die and all this, and they'd get cancer. Mm. Well, it was done on 75 year old women who were obese 
and were postmenopausal taking synthetic hormones. It mm. wasn't based on my people. Right. Let exactly. my people let let my people go. <laughs> let yeah, me so we, let us figure it out. Yeah, and I think it's really important to that's just one small example of things we have to consider when we look at research. We can't just read the headline and be like, oh, yeah. this is what this means, you know? Yeah. Um, we have to look at the population, the methods, the the funding, everything to study oh, these things. Like the like funding. These, these studies are are not these are these studies are done by humans. Um, and so they're imperfect and and basing every single decision we make solely on research is is i think a mistake um without looking at the wisdom of of nature and and the body and kind of having a, a respect for that you know i i think that we're we get way too caught up in in research and trying to know everything and thinking that we know everything you know um when when there's no way that we can um and instead stepping back and and um realizing that the body knows what it's supposed to do and we're not going to be able to manipulate it into doing what we want it to do. We have to put it in the environment so that it does what it needs to do. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's the, the lesson from that. Well, if you were already equipped, Dr. Hussey, with this knowledge on nutrition and supplements, what have you changed then since the cardiac event? Um, nothing really, because I sat there in the hospital thinking, oh, I can't release this book. Um, cause I was about to release it. Um, and I was like, I can't release this now. Like no one will believe me. No one will. Um, but then I wrote the introduction, I rewrote the introduction, um, talking about my heart attack and, and the experience I had in the hospital was like, oh my gosh, I can't not release this book. Like they're good. People who are in this situation, um, or have been in this situation are going to get the information I'm getting, which I know is wrong. A lot of it. Um, and if people want to write me off because I had a heart attack, then that's fine. Um, but I think it almost gives me more insight um, into to what's really going on with Western medicine, but then also um, what's really causing heart disease. And and I haven't changed anything about the book. I haven't changed anything about what I do. I'm doing more of some of the things that I suggest in the book. Um, I'm definitely focusing more on managing so you'd the already and the, and the book title is Understanding the Heart: Surprising Insights into the Evolutionary Origins of Heart Disease, Why It Matters, by Dr. Stephen Hussey, MSDC. So you're already writing the book. Then you were a publisher had this in its hands, or yourself published, whatever. Not quite. Not okay, quite. but I'm but, saying yeah. the wheels were moving on this, mm -hmm. and here you were strapped to a gurney, going, "Oh <laughs> crap, I got a public relations problem." <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it, but no, it turned out that it wasn't a public relations problem. No, because exactly. Everything that because I'm you know I sit there I go through everything in the book and I I still wholeheartedly agree with everything. Yeah. Um, I got I got into a situation that um, you know, caused a heart attack, and, and but I also think it goes to show that that um, we don't fully understand um what causes heart attacks um, no. because all the criteria that they say I would need to have to have a heart attack were not there. Yet I still had one, which which That's goes to show that they're, that they're ignoring other things. And so my goal in writing this book is not to say everybody else is wrong and then I'm right. Yeah. It's yeah. to open the conversation about heart disease so that we can actually figure out the best way forward. I mean, could you imagine if every cardiovascular researcher um, took my book and read it because um, it has lots of information that I guarantee they they haven't come across. They took it and said, hmm, that's interesting and asked, started asking questions. You know, and started saying, okay, well, let's, let's try and test this out. Let's try and test that out. But that'll never happen because they're all funded by pharmaceuticals. That's right. Uh, industry. And they're never going to have them do studies that don't, no. um, that, that make pharmaceuticals look bad or look like there's a, there's an option that's not a pharmaceutical. Right. Um, and that's just the nature of a capitalist society, um, unfortunately. Um, but I mean, that's my goal is to just open up the conversation, share ideas, um, hopefully help people in the process. Um, and, and and share my experience and help people learn through, through my experience. Okay. So we've covered, um, I'm pro animal meat here. I have local farmers that I, mm -hmm. you know, my grass fed beef and all that. I tell you what I got yesterday and I want to know your opinion on it. I found a dealer. I have her pager number if you need it for mm -hmm. raw yogurt. She, yeah. she dropped it off. We, we met at a grocery store parking lot and she gave me a, <laughs> I, my feasting window had closed. So I've not uh, had any yet, but I'm going to try it. What's your opinion then on dairy? Cause a lot of Hashimoto's patients stay away from dairy and gluten, but what do you think about raw? Well, well, can we handle the casein, casein, whatever that term is, and other things in the milk product, if we're getting the raw source? Uh, it depends on the person. Uh, okay. I, it, I mean, it depends on 
you know, it depends on your genetic heritage, um, yeah. combined yeah. with yeah. your environment since yeah. you were born. Um, you know, uh, it, it really just depends. And if you feel dairy is causing issues for you, I mean, dairy is a really interesting food. Um, it, so for some people, it's the, one of the most healing foods out there. Right. If you I get love it raw, it. If you get right. raw form, um, and some people do better with A2 versus A1 protein. Yeah. Um, so, how and, do you uh, know, how do you know if you have an A2 sensitivity or if, if you prefer the A2, cause I've thought about getting that cause I have a husband who clears his throat after he has dairy and he says he's fine. Yeah. He has no sensitivities, yeah. but yeah. I'm like, I wonder if I switched to A2, if that would make a difference. Well, if the, if, so if, the, if you had a raw, um, A1 dairy of some yeah. sort, yeah. um, and you switched to raw A2 and the symptoms went away, I'd say it's, it's probably the protein Okay, because it could also be, um, I mean, it could also be lactose. Um, it could be right. have an issue with lactose, which you wouldn't be able to, to um, it's in differentiate both. between those. Okay. Yeah, it's in both. But the other thing, a lot of the issue is the pasteurization yeah. and the hom- homogenization. So unless it was raw A1 versus raw A2, you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell um, because the, the pasteurization and the homogenization just ruin the fats and the proteins and stuff that we can't recognize. And it makes it, it makes a lot of issues or creates a lot of issues. Um, but yeah, dairy is an interesting food. I mean, some people do super well on it. Some people heal really well on it. Um, and some people just have really big issues with it. And so it really depends on the person. But I mean, there's the whole ethical side of things too that people like to talk about. Um, and uh, and then we are the only species that, that drinks right. milk past the age of six months or past the age of weaning, whatever that is. Yeah. Um, and we're the only species that drinks another species milk. Um, right. Which right. is interesting, but it doesn't mean that we can't use it. I mean, there are cultures like, you know, with Western price travel the world, there are cultures that used it a lot and they're really healthy. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I have raw yogurt as well. And um, we don't know what other planets are doing. The extraterrestrials, they yeah. may be enjoying somebody else's milk. Everybody yeah. quit judging us the fact that we like milk. <laughs> yeah. Well, it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that animals in nature wouldn't, wouldn't eat, uh, another species of milk. Um, if they had the capability to get it just because right. we've invented the capability to get it, we have dairy farms and stuff. Um, <laughs> right. You know, like d- d- that's the reason that other animals don't do it is because they don't have the capability to get it. Doesn't mean they wouldn't or wouldn't that's be true. healthy if they did it. So that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um. So limiting things in your diet, or I would assume gluten and other inflammatory, yeah, you know, bad seed oils, like we said. But gluten yeah. is probably something you stay away from as a type one diabetic, or more because of that you like good um, health. Yeah, I just don't think grains are a good food for humans yeah. in general. I just don't think they're the most bang for your buck food. They're um, delicious. When I'm, when I'm talking about like, you know, energy and nutrients, um, yeah. that's not the most bang for my buck right there. Neither are, neither are beans, neither are, um, like vegetable oils and things like that. Um, yeah. Um, I, I stay away from most fruit too. Um, I yeah. still have some fruit, but not a lot just cause it's carbs and that's hard. It makes it harder for my blood sugar. I yeah. don't think fruits inherently bad. Um, I don't think carbohydrates are inherently bad as long as they're whole food carbohydrates. Um, it's just for me, I, I stay with them because it's easier to manage blood sugars when I'm, when I'm not eating them. Yeah. Um, you know, this big push, and I know we're running out of time, but I'm just going to wrap up with this is big push for plant-based and Kim Kardashian mm-hmm. was doing a ad for beyond meat, which is just beyond ridiculous. I mean, it's beyond <laughs> gross. It's like eating plastic. I might as well just oh, yeah. eat whatever I it's, found on my counter. It's junk and food. It's it total is junk complete food. junk food. Um, but that makes it that those people then who are think that they're virtue signaling, telling me not to eat meat, um, they're really eating a diet then high in carbohydrates because mm-hmm. they would have to get some type of protein source. How, how are they getting protein sources then if they're eating a, a plant-based diet? Yeah. So there, so, I mean, in those beyond burgers and in the, and what's the other one? Um, impossible burger. Oh, I can't remember which one's which, but one's soy, one's pea protein or which whatever. Soy's those terrible. Are, yeah, soy is a terrible food. Um it but um those are legumes. So there's like protein there, but that oh. protein is not truly utilizable protein. It's it's A, it's an incomplete protein, so it doesn't have all the amino acids that we require in our diet. Okay. But it's also uh not a truly utilizable protein, meaning it's bound to cellulose. So so Ew. the reason the reason that a gorilla can eat pretty much leaves all day long and still have these huge muscles and, and make those make those muscles with protein. It's because they they have these big guts that ferment. They can ferment oh. <laughs> the, the protein away yeah. from the cellulose, yeah. right? We don't yeah. have that. 
Um, we used well, to we have, have big that. guts. Now, yeah. Western diet does have <laughs> big guts now, but not in the yeah. way we need them for. Yeah, uh, the, that's visceral it, adipose tissue. That's right. not um, <laughs> right. <laughs> that's not uh, fermentation chambers. Um, but yeah, so we don't have those fermentation chambers, um, and so we can't extract that protein. So like, you know, the true utilizable protein from from plant protein is like fifty percent maybe, um, and whereas like from from meat or like a steak, it's like ninety two plus percent. Yeah. Um, so we get way more protein from that and it's complete protein. It's way more absorbable. It's biologically available, um, to our, to our system. Um, that's what we are, are supposed to be getting our protein from. And the number one predictor of longevity as we age is maintenance of muscle mass. And if you want to maintain your muscle mass, you better be getting enough protein, protein. Um, high quality, yeah. utilizable protein. Um, incredibly important as we age. Okay. Where's the beef? We just told you where it is. That's what you yeah. need to do. Okay. Yeah. I could talk to you for another week, but uh, I've got to go eat my uh, dairy, my raw <laughs> yogurt, and I made nice. some bone broth with turmeric nice. in it. <laughs> so that's what I got. That's how I'm opening my feasting window today <laughs> at about four o'clock uh, central time. So great job. Thank you so much. Yep. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe and download all the episodes and leave a review, won't you? The Lisa Fisher Said Podcast is produced by ClantonCreative.com.